0: Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thanks again for joining me here at the Back of the Range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is Episode 60. If it sounds like I have a cold, well, um, I have a cold. Not much all this fancy audio editing software can do about that, so I apologize in advance. Let's just take care of the usual housekeeping stuff quickly and get to this week's episode. Last week I mentioned that I would be attending the Oasis Championship in Boca Raton, Florida. I spent Saturday and Sunday there and had an absolute blast. Let me tell you something. If the Champions Tour is coming to your city sometime this year, go check it out. The crowds are enthusiastic. You get to see some incredible golf. The players are very accessible. And if you want to watch some of the best swings in the game, well, you know what I'm going to say next. Go hang out at the back or the front of the range. I sat and watched players like David Frost, Retief Goosen, Freddie, Darren Clark, Tom Lehman, Jeff Maggert, Bernhard Langer, they were all there. And I know that I never give swing advice on this podcast because I'm not a PGA teaching professional, but the one takeaway I can share with all of you, all of these pros swing within themselves and are perfectly balanced. So I hope that observation helps you. I had so much fun, I'm actually going to follow the tour across the state of Florida to Naples next weekend to go check out the Chubb Classic. Do I have some potential interviews set up already? You bet. So remember, the best way to follow the Back of the Range Golf podcast is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, or if you have an Android, we got you covered. Check out Spotify or Google Play. Don't forget, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All those links are in the show notes of this podcast. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please keep leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts. I love the feedback, even the person that said, I have the voice of an angel. That's weird, but still, keep leaving reviews, and if you want to learn more about the podcast, again, go to the website, thebackoftherange.com. If you've been following golf for quite some time, you will definitely recognize the name of our guest this week. You might know that he played collegiately at Stanford, won the national championship in 1994, and was on the team in '95 that finished second to Alan Bratton and the Oklahoma State Cowboys. Nota Begay was one of his teammates, and so was a young Tiger Woods. While he did win once on the Nike Tour and made it to the PGA Tour, you probably remember that Casey Martin successfully sued the PGA Tour in 2001 for the right to use a golf cart during competition under the Americans with Disabilities Act. After his playing career was done, he returned to his hometown, where he became the head coach of the men's team at the University of Oregon in 2006. We spoke about his playing days at Stanford, his time on the tour, and the players he's helped along the way to the PGA Tour, like Aaron Wise, Wyndham Clark, and one of his most recent stars, Walker Cupper, Norman Jong. We also chatted about his 2016 season, where he became a national championship head coach. Lots of great stuff to talk about. Let's get right into it. Casey Martin, thanks for joining us here at the Back of the Range. Uh, Thank you. Well, you have an established amateur career, you've won a national championship as a player at Stanford, you've won as a coach at Oregon, played on the PGA Tour, and played in multiple majors. So let's just start at the beginning. How did you get into the game of golf?
1: Yeah, you know, I started um, at Eugene Country Club with my father and brother. My dad played golf, and my brother was two years older than me, and so anything he did, I had to do, and so when my brother was seven, my dad got him some clubs, and I was five, and I wanted to do what he was doing and so next thing you know I was hit playing golf and it sort of was I guess um you know prophetic to some degree because of my leg at five years old they weren't sure about my disability and what exactly was going on and so later on in life I really couldn't pursue any other sports like basketball and all these things I really kind of wanted to do I was kind of in a sense forced to play golf but I loved it because I started early and it was kind of a match because my leg wouldn't let me play the sports and I could play golf and did it well so it kind of worked out
0: yeah and you know you had this really great amateur career even before you um you know before you turned professional you um you know won the 93 Sahali and and all pac 10 and and just remember that really great team at Stanford you know you won the national championship with you know Nota Begay and 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 the rest of your squad and then you you know, that should be the perfect capstone to a great college career. But you redshirt and you stay another year. And and obviously, I'm assuming that the freshman class coming in, namely Tiger Woods in 95, had a lot to do with it. But it's kind of rare to hear of a college senior saying, you know what, let me do something that's a little bit different and redshirt and stick around. When did that start entering your mind?
1: Full disclosure, so I redshirted my junior year. And so Node and I played together in our first two years. And then Coach Goodwin came to us and said, hey, there's a good chance um, that we're going to get Tiger Woods. And he said, but you guys would need to redshirt to be able to play with him. And so Note and I talked it over. We both weren't going to graduate in four years just because the, the amount of golf we're playing. And Stanford's you know, sort of a tough school. So sure. we were going to need about half a year to finish our, our, our degree anyway. And we're like, damn, why don't we just knock it out right now and then come back and, and maybe try to play with him? So that's kind of what we did. So we redshirted. And then the year we came back, our our what would have been our senior year, but we were juniors eligibility wise, uh, we were able to win the national championship. And then Tiger showed up the next year, and we were ranked number one most of the year, but then faded at the end and lost in a playoff to Oklahoma State.
0: Well, and I actually talked to Coach Alan Bratton last year or during season one of this podcast, and and he told that story about the the playoff, which is just such a, a an incredible first time sudden death playoff in a college event. He told us his perspective of that, and unfortunately, yours is not going to be the same. But, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, the end
1: result ends up the same. They won. Allen made about a forty-footer on the playoff hole, as well as one other guy on their team, and they were playing four-count four because four one of their players had left early. We had we had the thing kind of locked up. Right. I remember I I missed in regulation a ten-footer for birdie on eighteen. Noda missed about a eight-footer for birdie, and Tiger missed about a six-footer. We teased Tiger that was the only clutch putt he's ever missed, um, <laughs> and it was for us to go back to back. But, you know, looking back, even though we didn't win, it was a magical college experience and just had an incredible, incredible time. It's probably why I'm coaching now is I had such a great experience.
0: Right. Well, you know, you, you play professionally, you, you turn pro. Um, unfortunately, you are not uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but you are not the first uh nike lakeland classic winner to ever grace this podcast Ryan. yeah How- right ryan. ryan house and won it in 97 you won it in 98 what do you uh what did you uh what did you like most about the times cutting it on the mini tours and the and the lower uh developmental tours like like nike and and hooters what yeah do you have a fond memory from that time
1: well i mean there were many i mean you look back it's it's not always about the destination it is sometimes about the journey and and anyone playing on the mini tours and some of those it's it's a journey you're going to places you would have never dreamt of or or you know little small towns but you get to the great part about life and a lot of the and golf in particular you get to meet a lot of great people and so um a lot of guys i still stay in touch with from the days of playing the mini tours and you know people that you'd meet that would come out and watch and a lot of times you try to save a buck you'd stay in private housing you develop relationships with people so um that part is is uh I look back on very fondly um, about, you know, the mini tour experience
0: for sure. And, you know, that same year you played in the U.S. Open, you actually beat out Ryan in the playoff to get into that U.S. Open at Olympic. He, he reminded me of that this morning when I told him I was going to be talking to you. He's still a little upset about that. But um, what, <laughs> what, what was the... Uh... What was the sectional qualifier experience like, not only in the 98, but also in 2012? You went back and played the U.S. Open at Olympic again. Was your decision to play in 2012 because it was Olympic?
1: You know, I had a great experience, like you said, in 1998, making the Open. I made the cut and finished, I think, maybe 23rd or something around there, which is a good finish for me. And, And, you know, it's pretty fun playing in those. I will say this, playing a U.S. Open is probably the least fun of all golf although you, you look forward to it and prep for it it's just it's extremely difficult so i don't know if fun is the right word but right played in that and then um when i was coaching it came back west to, to olympic and and i had been hit playing decent on the side so i tried to qualify and it worked out um i've tried other times and it hasn't worked out so it's more just a coincidence that you know things kind of lined up for me to make it again in 2012. But um, I, I might try again this year. You know, I didn't last year. It's kind of fun to go out there and, and, and play against the young guys and see if you can still beat them. And uh, so I might try again this year. But certainly the good news, if you can win or get it through the sectional, you can play in the open. The bad news is you have to play in the open. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, although it's a pebble this year, so I think it's going to be worth any carnage experience to oh, get yeah. to go there.
0: Um, one of the great things that you got to participate in, which is kind of a hometown thing, which unfortunately has gone away, but I always liked anytime I can get my hands on any clips or any DVDs of the old Fred Meyer challenge. And I know that you were at the Fred Meyer challenge. It's uh, you know, kind of a charity two man event in the mm-hmm. Portland area that Peter Jacobson used to run. I know you've been in that played in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people probably don't even remember that. They might be listening to mm-hmm. this podcast, but if you're able to get your hands on that footage, it's just, it's fun stuff. What is, can you pinpoint any one little anecdote from the Fred Meyer challenge?
1: Well, I think the Fred Meyer challenge was something Peter Jacobson put together to bring high-level golf to the Northwest, where there just isn't a lot of majors or PGA Tour events. And so right. he had done that forever. And he, I mean, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, a lot of the greats, and it was a two-man best ball kind of, you know, fun Monday, Tuesday deal. And I grew up watching it, going to it, and just, you know, trying to get autographs of all the guys. And so suddenly to get to playing it was, you know, such a such a blessing. And Peter's been so good to me. So um, that part's just been awesome. But looking back, really, the highlight of it is—I mean, Peter used to do these impressions, and he'd go out there on the on before the first tee, and there'd be thousands of people lining the first tee, and they would do this clinic, and and they would just have a bunch of fun and and mimic all the great players. And Peter just used to nail it. So um, that part, you know, you could see the pros kind of let their hair down and be funny, and and uh, it was a very unique experience. And and for me, as a kid growing up, watching that and getting to play, and it was was uh, really special
0: who were some of your partners when you played the friend meyer um john vanderbilt one year billy mayfair one year noda Begay, kyle
1: stanley one year so i played i played in it a handful of times and, and had a blast every year
0: that's great well you made your your transition into coaching i know that you you've stated in in previous articles that you had had the interest of getting into coaching you know while you're still playing professionally but um, I want to ask you about the, the, the man that came before you at Oregon, uh, the head coach at Oregon, Steve Nosler, who was there from 93 to 2006. And he actually did something kind of unique. He transitioned into the assistant when you were yeah. coming in as the head coach. I, you know, I've talked to other college coaches and, you know, whether they had to serve as an assistant and then get the job or they had to basically be an assistant to move around from school to school before they getting a chance to be head coach. Can you talk a little bit about what that 2006 season was like for you?
1: You know, it was, um, it actually lasted for longer than that. Now okay. stayed on for a number of years. So what happened is Steve Osler has been a great friend of mine, uh, growing up a long time Eugenian and, and had taken over the golf program, even though he wasn't a professional golfer, he had had a, a clothing shop. He had played a a huge role in his life of just Oregon golf association, junior golf and all that. So back in the day, back in the eighties and nineties, when things were a little different, um, he had gotten in and done a great job with the program, basically serving not so much as a golf coach per se, like golf swing, but a fundraiser and just a a manager of that program and did an awesome job. So he was, I guess, closing in on retirement and saw my career on the PGA tour kind of coming to an end he just floated an idea by me. It's like, hey, if you'd ever want to get into coaching, I'd stay on and help you. and You could take the reins and really help these kids, and I could stay on and fundraise and do what I do. And I was like, gosh. Oh, wow. So my fear of college coaching was some of the behind-the-scenes work. I love the golf side of things, but All I wasn't right. sure about the other stuff. So my first years of coaching, I got to recruit a ton, which I love to do, get to play with the guys, work with them, and I didn't worry about a thing. And, and so I look back, it was a pretty magical uh, relationship and, and it worked in the sense that I was able to attract some talent. And it's funny, the guys, when they came here, they just adored Nas because he was just quirky and funny and they just loved him to death. And and we had one great run, two great runs, one in 2010 where we were ranked number one and then lost um, in the final four uh, back in Chattanooga. And then in 2012, unfortunately, Nas was sick and he wa- uh, was wasn't as active at that point, but we almost won it again in 2012. And so I know even though uh, Steve Nosler passed away, he would have looked down on our championship at Eugene as, as something that, um, I mean, that would have come full circle for him to see Oregon win a championship. And so hopefully he, uh, hopefully he did get to see it.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and this one might be a little bit hard to answer. I know hindsight and, and looking back, but if you didn't have that experience with, with coach Nosler, do you think you necessarily would have gotten into coaching?
1: You know, that's a great question. I, I don't know. It's possible um, because I was starting to look for, okay, what's next for me? And, and college coaching was a natural fit for me because I grew up in a college town, loved it, loved the University of Oregon, even though I went to Stanford, I, my whole family went to Oregon and I love it. And so um, I've always big been big into recruiting and football. football. I've just been around the college right. scene, known all the coaches. So it was a natural fit for me to be able to share my experiences and and, and be around it um and knowledge just made it that much easier for me to do it so kind of a perfect situation
0: what uh what do you think were your strengths i mean coming in and then conversely what do you think were some of your weaknesses i guess you know you kind of answered that right there yeah. as far no, as recruiting you, but i'm just curious like you know you sure yeah. you had this resume playing professionally but, but this is a completely different animal just being a coach yeah
1: it is and and certainly i think I've learned i I hope better coach today than I was initially so when I first came in um, my passion was recruiting and I think that's still been my strength in college coaching that's the number one thing you need talent and so I think my playing days can be both a strength and a weakness I think from the strong side of being able to play I can relate to the guys I know what you need to do um but just because I'm a player sometimes doesn't I mean it doesn't always translate to being a great coach right but I've really taken the perspective of I coach from a perspective of my failures, like what I should have done when I played, what I wish I would have done if I had someone over my shoulder the whole time telling me what to do. I think I would have done things differently. So I try to be that for my guys. So I really try to take my failures as a player and turn those into a positive as a coach. And so I think it has my playing days give me some credibility and it's given me some insight to be able to help them. And this is why a lot of it just comes down to personality. I think my personality, when I get in a competitive situation, I'm really competitive and, and I'm a grinder. And, and I think that's really good in, in some respects, but also was probably deterrent a little early on. I could have scared a few of my early guys early <laughs> on of just, you know, you know and so i've had to work through that and recognize there's a value for that but probably not all the time and so uh, that part is just a, ma- a matter of learning and, and, and growing as a coach and hopefully i'm better now uh, but i think early on i probably was a little intense but hey um we uh, but i also look back we had a lot of success, success when i was that way and i still am i'm still when when the lights come on i want to win and, and my guys feel that and they know that i'm engaged and um so hopefully it's uh, overall it's a positive, but I think there were a few, a few short term.
0: Sure. Yeah. A couple of learning, learning curves. Yeah. Nice. There's a very small club of guys that can say that they played college golf against tiger. And it's even smaller that can say they played with him. And you're, you're Uh one of those guys. I know you get a lot of these tiger questions, so I'll try and make this one as original as possible. Can you share with our listeners, a specific tiger Woods story that you've shared with your players at Oregon for the purpose of illustrating a point or conveying a message or getting, or getting the most out of them.
1: Well, I'd say this, I'd say, um, I remember early on um, when I, I remember being in Hawaii and, and staying with Tiger in the hotel for a trip and he had a sports psychologist at the time named Jay Brunza. And I remember yeah. asking Tiger, like, what do you guys do? You know? Cause I, I mean, at this, this point in the mid early nineties, I, I mean, sports psychologists weren't as prevalent as they are now and so he kind of shared a story of what he did and what he struggled with mentally and what he did well and it was a really simple thing of where basically you know his father had come from a military background and probably had done some of this too but basically like before a tournament tiger would just learn this almost call it a meditation routine where he would get really quiet and just remember all his great shots and then think about all the great shots he wants to hit that next day in the tournament. And he had Jay to kind of guide him through that process. And I always thought it was really interesting as I watched Tiger's career unfold about how, you know, the sum of his parts, you know, two plus two for Tiger equaled five. And, and somehow he was just able to do, even though his golf swing was great and he was powerful, he always, just he was like the most overachieving guy and he was the best, you know, he was really bizarre what he could pull off under pressure and i always related it back to probably some of the stuff he learned as a kid with jay as far as just going into his mental routine and just going to a place that guys didn't go to as much and that always resonated with me now i'm not real bright so for 20 years i forget about it right? and so i'm thinking about my team a few years ago just going man we need some help on on the mental side and i had bounced around with some different psychologists and I just suddenly remember Jay 20 years later. I'm like, I'm going to call him and see if he'll work with us. Oh, that's so sure enough, Sure enough, the year we won the national championship, Jay was, that was his first year working with our team. And, and I know a lot of the guys really gravitated to him and he really helped them being able to tap into some of that, the powers of the subconscious and, you know, performance related kind of stuff. And so um, that was a direct translation. I wouldn't have had that connection to Jay without Tiger. and Just learning about that is, is, is kind of cool to see it come full full circle with not only Tiger, but with our team winning a championship.
0: That's uh, that's an amazing story. I'm so glad I asked that question because I never knew that. Um, okay. I, I asked this question to just about every college coach that I have. I, I'm, I love asking this question because I think it serves a purpose for parents of juniors and juniors themselves. Um, you know, what, what advice would you give to juniors and parents that have hopes and dreams of playing golf collegiately? What are some of the things that you think they, that need to be done that are right? What are some of the things that they do wrong that you kind of maybe shake your head at? What, what's some advice you have for juniors that are entering that realm of playing collegiately?
1: You could talk for hours on this and and I don't have all the answers. I've seen good and bad, and there's different personality types that there's good and bad to everything. Right. And so I've seen a lot of overbearing parents that can be bad, right? Because they, it's their dream to play college golf and they're dragging their kid along and scarring him on his way you know so you see some of that and, and i think kids would be better if if they were supported and not maybe hovered over in a lot of respects so you do see that but at the same token some kids might need a hard driving parent to really keep them in the game and not go you know do bad things so i'm not saying it's all negative by any stretch but right. I would say basically the players that really get it the ones that become great um it's self-driven the more you can provide an avenue for your kid obviously provide for them create the opportunity and love them through the ups and downs um, and somehow encourage them to love the game and let it become their passion they're going to be better and they're going to pursue it more and harder if it is the dad's dream or the mom's dream it just it it doesn't quite work as well and so i'm not a parent so i can't speak from experience but i i do think I, my, my dad was great. My dad never criticized my bad performance. I was a hard worker, so he never had to really encourage me to go work. Um, he provided for me. I never felt criticized if I did a bad thing. I mean, we, we might talk about it, but I never felt like he was mad at me because I hit it in the water on the final hole. Um, and so I think that's a really positive thing. It's why I golf was never, um, it was always fun for me, uh, golf. I enjoyed it because I didn't feel like I had to give an account to my parents for everything I did or didn't do. So I would say from my experience, I had a great family. My mom and dad were awesome that way. and It helped me. Um, and so if a parent's listening, I think as much as you might want it, it's really got to come from the kid. And, And so there's ways to let that happen, but just not to drive it too much. So that's what I would say that way. Um, and then from a kid perspective, um, just kind of recognizing if you do want to be good at golf, how much sacrifice is really required uh, just going out and playing, you know, playing a little bit here and there or play with your buddies. It's fun. But if you really want to be good at golf and pursue it hard at the division one level, it's, uh, you got to sacrifice things. Uh, you know, obviously the partying culture and that you can't do that. You, uh, as far as sitting around and play video games all night, you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> um if you want to become the best. You gotta nowadays you gotta get in the gym, you gotta care for your body, you gotta be on top of everything, you've gotta have a mental routine, a physical I mean you gotta do it right. right. There's just so many kids now. It's all so much bigger, there's just more people, and there's still the same amount of spots on the PGA tour. Oh, I
0: know despite that's...
1: all the all the people over the world, there's still 125 guys that keep their card. And and so to get to that level, it just it takes a lot of sacrifice. And, yeah. and um I think that's what I would tell any kid is there's no one way to do it um but no one's just lucked their way into it you gotta really find your plan and and you gotta be willing to sacrifice other things that distract you from it
0: you've had uh, no that's 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 perfect I, I i like i said i like getting this perspective from college coaches because i think it's it's important for juniors important for parents to hear that from from uh, you know leaders of of these elite uh, programs you know you, you're talking about your players how close do you get to your players where you can still be there and support them, but you still have to be able to detach emotionally in some way so they make the best decision for your entire team? And I guess I'm talking a little bit about, for example, you know, Solomon Raza, who made the championship putt for you. And then it's pretty documented that he had a lot of struggles leading up to the next year. And then he's right back again playing in regionals and playing in the championship. What w- what's that time like where you have to support a player? when they're having a rough time but then also do what's best for your team absolutely i mean
1: he had an amazing college career he had some definite highs winning a national championship on your home turf making the putt and he's had some lows and he would you know and that's just i think you got to be prepared for that in in golf and that it's not easy i mean i look back jim didn't play for his team his senior year i remember you know and he's pretty good at golf now you know he he's okay he's okay yeah so I use him as an example a lot. It's like, you just don't know when your time's coming. And and Roz was a very hard worker, did struggle with his putting, but really fought it and was a warrior mentally to overcome it. And so to see him make that putt it's probably the highlight of my – maybe my – certainly my college experience to see that putt go in one of the highlights just in my life to see a kid wow. struggle and grind and fail and come back and get beat up and then have that run to win a championship um really special for me and for him and, and it makes a lot of the hard work and a lot of the the grind worth it and, and i'll be able to use him as an example the kids if i coach for another 50 years i'll use him as an example all the time just about you just gotta keep grinding you don't know what the results are going to be just keep fighting keep fighting you don't know keep fighting yep. and sure enough good things good things
0: normally come um couple of your other former players Aaron Wise Norman Jong you know the web.com tour and and a lot of these mini tours all over yep. all over the country are just littered with college stars that can go shoot it seems 66 in their sleep um, what what is it about those two guys um, I know Aaron's won Norman has not won yet but I know Aaron's won the PGA tour what do you see out of those two guys that that leads you to believe that they are going to make it as as PGA tour professionals that I mean I know you can't speak for every other college star that's out there trying to make it but but where where is that line of difference that that makes them a yeah. success? I mean is it
1: Yeah, everyone's got a different skill set, strengths and weaknesses. Aaron when he came in mentally was super strong. Aaron's got self-belief like you can't believe and um has a very good golf swing, but really has worked really hard on that with Jeff Smith and um, down in Vegas and become a really elite ball striker because of that. But I think this, the thing that set apart Aaron is just the comfort level he had in his own skin under, under big time pressure. He thrived on it. You know, you can't teach that. It's nothing I can do to do that. Um, that's just, he has a gift that way. Right. Um, his skills are great, but. But really, there's a lot of guys with a lot of great skills that you haven't heard of yet. Um, And I think for Aaron, the reason you have heard of him, why he was the rookie of the year on the tour, um, is just how mentally focused and engaged he is. So that was him. Norman's a little different. Um, Norman certainly has that belief. Norman's just a complete freak physically. Um, (laughs) I I don't know how else to explain it. I mean, he's he's just big. and He just hits it as well as anyone I've ever been around. Um, and naturally never really had a true lesson, um, very natural player. He just is gifted ball striking wise beyond belief. And so when he shows up in college, he's, you know, as he showed up early, Norman shows up to Oregon as a senior high school, he graduates in December of his senior year and shows up in January cause he wanted to turn pro sooner than later. So in half the year, he was the, you know, Phil Mickelson national freshman of the year, right. Went out and then was the national. Player of the year the next year at 19 years old, doing it really with just raw brute strength and talent over the golf swing. Um, Rom a great putter. His short game isn't at the level, and he's been working on it, and it's getting a lot better. He's gonna pop. He hasn't done great yet, but he's gonna right. um, because he just when you hit it like that, it's just a matter of time. But it's just a matter of time to him finding his way when you're 19, 20 playing the tour. There's going to be some ups and downs, but when you watch him, he's just a physical freak. He's just so much better than everybody else. Naturally, that that's just kind of why he was so successful. And then we had another guy in there too, that transferred in Wyndham Clark. Yeah. And Wyndham, uh, just made it through on the web is on the PGA tour this year. And and, and Wyndham's kind of a cross between the two Wyndham's um, incredible work ethic, incredibly strong. And um, a guy that I think um, in due time on the PGA tour, you'll hear about him this year as well. So it's been kind of fun to have three guys that are, you know, have the chance that if things go right or could be like top 10 players in the world type talent. And that's fun for me to watch and of for, for the community of Oregon to support those guys.
0: Well, coach, you've been extremely gracious with your time. I just want to get you out of here. And one final question, when people hear the name Casey Martin, many people will think of the case that went all the way to the Supreme court that ultimately granted you the right to use a golf cart in the PGA tour. When you look back at that time in your life and thinking about the culture and where things are now, what are your thoughts?
1: You know, yeah, I mean, you look back and now culture's changed a lot. I don't think it's very possible that if I would come on the scene today for the first time, things would be different, a little easier, maybe. Uh, And and that makes me happy for what I went through to hopefully, you know, make that path easier for the next guy that has a physical disability to, to get some help. So that part is, is. You know, I look back, even though I had to go through a lot of struggles and fight for it, um, you know, I think there's some good that's going to come out of it. But yeah, looking back, I mean, yeah, there were some crazy times and, and things that um, in 2019 you probably wouldn't have to deal with, but I, I did at the time, and the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, was new at the time, and I was the first guy to really put it to the test in, in the realm of sport, the sporting world, which is legitimately, uh, it, it. obviously the case proved that there it did apply to the sport world but i was the first one to really bridge that gap and and so um you know looking back you know i don't regret it it was a difficult time um but it it also brought a lot of good um my career as a golfer wasn't like legendary and so a lot of people know me through that so it's given me some credibility in the golf world for what i've gone through and and so for that part hey it, it worked
0: out Well, Coach, I really do appreciate the time. I know uh, you're getting ready and ramping up for the spring season, and you're looking at that in another national championship, so I appreciate you joining me here at the Back of the Range. Uh, Anytime. Thanks so much. And there you have it. Another great episode here at the Back of the Range. Special thanks to Casey Martin for joining us. Don't forget, follow us on Instagram at the Back of the Range podcast. We'll be at the Chubb Classic all weekend, so we'll be posting a lot then. For now, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Here at the back of the range.